listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. This is the second of five Sundays the lectionary will have us chipping our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you were here last Sunday... You might recall that I said that the great issue underlying this letter, the reason Paul is writing to the Galatian communities, is that of the inclusion of Gentile believers in the body of Christ. Specifically, the question was, must Gentile Christians also convert to Judaism to follow the practices set out in the Torah? On this count, Paul is firm. No, they do not have to convert. In this, he's in line with the discernment of the Council of Jerusalem, which had asked only that the Gentile Christians, quote, abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, and from whatever has been strangled, and from blood. As I noted last Sunday, that was a massive concession on the part of the Jewish Christians. One matter of sexual ethics, and three related to the dietary codes, period. Yet others had begun to make their voices heard among the young Galatian Christian communities, insisting that the Christian movement was, by definition, a Jewish movement. So Paul has gone into gear in the writing of this letter, determined to set out an alternate view. Last week's reading, he rehearsed parts of his own story. He reminded his readers that as a young man, he had advanced in Judaism beyond many other people my age, and that he was far more zealous for the traditions of the ancestors. In the name of those traditions, Paul had committed himself to violently persecuting the church of God, trying to destroy it. Yet God had some other ideas, had stopped the zealous defender of a pure Pharisaic Judaism in his tracks, knocked him flat, turned him around, and called him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Whereas it is pretty clear that others in the Jewish Christian community had stretched their thinking, those Jerusalem Christians, for instance, they had stretched their thinking, they had stretched their assumptions and their age-old prejudices to try to make room for Gentiles. Paul's embrace is even more thoroughgoing than theirs. It's even a bit radical. For instance... That Jerusalem council, as recorded in Acts 15, had requested that the Gentiles, quote, abstain from things polluted by idols, meat sacrificed to idols. Well, that's actually relativized by Paul. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul argues that since we all know that no idol in the world really exists, there is no God but one, The eating of meat sacrificed to idols really isn't a problem at all, unless, unless by doing so you lead someone else into thinking that you are somehow paying homage to idols. That's the problem. 
If you give a sign that you're worshiping other gods, then and only then is idol meat an issue. So Paul's prepared to push further than most. Similarly, in the passage that comes right before this evening's reading, we discover that Peter, Peter, has gone weak at the knees on the full inclusion of the Gentiles. Whereas Peter had once freely shared meals with Gentile Christians, he'd ceased doing it. He'd ceased out of a concern that he was going to offend the hard-line purists, the group Paul refers to as the circumcision faction. Well, that's a move that pushes Paul right to the edge. I mean, there you are, Peter. You're afraid to offend that hard-line bunch, But what about offending those with whom you once shared meals? You're now backing away from them. Come on, Peter. That's where this evening's reading picks up. And so he writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now that feels like a a bit of judgment tucked in there, doesn't it? Yet... He says, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The law, even the most scrupulous and zealous observance of every letter of the Torah, doesn't justify us before God, he's saying. No one will be justified by the works of the law, he writes, But instead, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's now Christ who lives in me. And that's the source of my justification. That's what he's saying. Best way to understand what Paul means by justification is to think in terms of being declared just in spite of the unjustifiable stuff that's still in our lives. Paul does care about the decisions people make. He he does have a a set of ethics that, that pop up over the course of his epistles. It's just that his ethics are a response to the gift of grace, a response to being declared already just and beloved. And so he writes, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. Anytime, he's saying, anytime I'm even close to living graciously or righteously, it's nothing more than a response to what was first given me. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul writes, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. It's not about the law anymore. Not not that he entirely blows off the Torah or dismisses the traditions of his ancestors. He just sees it all in a whole new light. Here, the New Testament scholar Jamie Clark Souls offers some important insight. The works of the law, she comments, served as a distinctive ethnic 
and religious identity marker for God's chosen people, the Jews. Now, Paul has no problem with the law, she continues, but he sees salvation history as divided into three epochs, three periods. The first is that of Abraham and Sarah, the ancient stories. And in those ancient stories, what God offers is promise. Promise is the point of connection between the patriarchs and matriarchs and their God, and it's expressed in the early covenants. The second epoch is the epoch of Moses, in which it is the law, the Torah, that God gives as the connecting point. So many of the prophets are really clear. God didn't need the blood of bulls and goats, nor did God need people to abstain from eating seafood, lobster tail, or from blending fabric, or from any of the other requirements of the Torah. That's not God's need. It was, though, basically, in the doing of those things, in the practicing of this great discipline of life, in the following of Torah, that people could express their faithfulness and make their connection. And now Paul sees that a whole new epoch has come upon the world, that of Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now in Christ, the point of connection is simply faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, he writes in his letter to the Ephesians. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's a gift, it's all gift. The whole works, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you think you've done a heck of a good job of following the straight and narrow, or you're afraid, maybe you've failed. It's all a gift. What makes Paul really mad at Peter and at anyone else who's waffled about the status of the Gentile believers is the presumption that somehow some are more entitled to the gift than others. Tonight's story from the Gospel according to Luke picks up on the problem of presumption in a really significant way. Jesus is eating at the home of a Pharisee when a woman arrives. She's described simply as a sinner by Luke. The general assumption is that she was probably a prostitute. That may or may not be true, but she certainly acts in a way that a modern therapist would say meant she was lacking in boundaries. She enters the house. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And she began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. She let down her hair, which in that world was something that a reputable woman would never do in front of strangers, particularly men. 
And with tears and kisses and ointment, she bathes Jesus' feet. Simon the Pharisee, he's named here, Simon the Pharisee is appalled. He says to himself, if this Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. You can all but see the look of revulsion on Simon the Pharisee's face. Well, Jesus' response is to tell a little parable about receiving a gift, receiving forgiveness, and then to say, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. The forgiveness is first, the showing of great love. Second, notice that. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then to the woman, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, typical of Jesus' teaching style, he just kind of lets it all hang there. With Simon the Pharisee left to further digest both the little parable, but also the event, the experience itself. I like to imagine, though, Paul, the former Pharisee, meeting Simon the Pharisee, let's say 20 years later. You know, Simon, Paul might say, you know, Simon, there was a time when I would have reacted in exactly the same way you did. There was a time when the very presence of that woman would have been repulsive to me. But not now. Not now. Because that same Jesus Christ has loved me and given himself for me. And by doing that, he's shown me how my old presumptions were actually keeping me away from God, not drawing me closer keeping me away from the very God I thought I was so zealously serving. My presumptions were separating me. You know what you should have said, Simon. You know what you should have done? When Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you, now go in peace, you really should have said, no, Rabbi Jesus, let her stay. Let her sit with us and be filled at the table with us. Because, Simon, we are in a new epoch, the epoch of grace by faith. The old dividing lines, the old judgments, the old presumptions, they've come down. There is but one table, and all, all should hear the invitation to sit down and eat. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.